millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of violence and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Something Wicked, a bonus series from the Three Ravens podcast, all about historical monsters, maniacs, and murderers from across the world of folklore. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer, and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Hello, and Martin, I'm excited about this episode because once again, I have absolutely no idea who Alice Kittler is, <laughs> and I'm always interested when we encounter a female murderer. Yeah, you're a feminist in all things, aren't you? I am, and it's refreshing to learn about women being just as barbaric, terrifying, and dreadful as their male counterparts. <laughs> Keeps the patriarchy on its toes. <laughs> well, I think you're going to find Alice Kittler's story very, very interesting because, to give you some highlights, she was, firstly... The first person accused of witchcraft in Irish history. Oh, interesting. Plus, she was incredibly wealthy, supposedly the wealthiest woman in Linster. Excellent. Although I feel after our Elizabeth Bathory episode, there may be a correlation between her wealth and accusations of witchcraft. Possibly. Uh, furthermore, she was married four times, so has a bit of a black widow reputation. And last headline, after being charged with some pretty fruity crimes, which we will absolutely absolutely outline later in the episode, including having sex with a demon, she escaped, disappearing before her trial, and was never heard of again. Okay, wow, so she managed to get away with it, mm -hmm. well, whatever it really is. I'm presuming she had to leave her money behind, but still, she did a flip. Yes. <laughs> well, let's start digging into some details. First off, you mentioned Leinster. My Irish history is a little shaky, but tell me about what life was like in Leinster when Alice Kittler was born. So Alice was born in in 1263, so during the 13th century, in County Kilkenny. Now, Ireland historically had five ancient kingdoms or counties, Connacht, 
Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Meath. Uh, these were known as the Quiga, the fifths or five parts. The first to disappear was Meath, which was integrated into Leinster and Ulster. But if you imagine a map of Ireland's outline, I'm doing it. if we start at the top with what these days is mostly Northern Ireland, that's the Kingdom of Ulster, then below it, to the east of the country, down the coast, you have the Kingdom of Leinster. That stretches right down to the south coast. Then along the south and southwest coast, bordered by the Shannon Estuary up to Limerick, you have the Kingdom of Munster. Then above the Shannon Estuary in the northwest of the country, you have the Kingdom of Connacht. And bearing in mind what you just said, I'm guessing Meath was south of Ulster, north of Leinster, before it was integrated into these two kingdoms. Correct. So Dublin was once on the southern border of Meath, northern border of Leinster, and once those two kingdoms kind of merged, Dublin became the de facto capital of Leinster. Right, well, Dublin's one of the most significant cities in Ireland, mm. arguably the most important historic town and city. So if Alice Kittler was the richest woman in Leinster, she must have been really wealthy. Yep, and this is within a greater context of Norman invasion. So in English history, 1066 is the important date. That's when Billy the Conks led his invasion of England. But the Normans also invaded Ireland in 11. 1172, so a little over a century later, beginning their campaign from Wexford, which is also in Leinster. I'm just thinking back to our Rutland episode from last week. 1172 means Henry II was the Norman king of the yeah. time. And you did say he ended up holding Irish territories. Oh, he sure did. So before the Norman invasion of Ireland, the country was split into several smaller kingdoms. The estimated number is 150 at times, with an overall high king of Ireland sitting above those kind of loose federations that variously fought and traded and conquered one another. And that's said to have been the case right through the deep past and into the medieval era. I feel like all this is amazing history and we're just kind of breezing past it. Yeah, it's all fascinating. But I'm doing some broad strokes to give us rough context for Alice Kittler specifically. Now, the Normans romped through Ireland to start with, conquering the vast majority of the country, aided by Flemish soldiers. But by 1263, when Alice Kittler is born, a lot of that territory had already been lost, reclaimed by the native population. Nonetheless, Leinster was still the kind of Anglo-Norman power base in Ireland, centred around Dublin, with the area around Dublin broadly known as the Pale. Yes. Now, this is a slightly controversial term, the Pale. Mm. We have quite a famous idiom in English, don't we? Saying something is beyond the Pale, meaning it's unacceptable. Yeah. And that term comes from the Pale in Ireland. Yes, thought to. Yes. So, because the Pale in Ireland existed for several centuries, and let's be clear about the meaning of the word. The pale is linked to the root term palisade, which is an ancient kind of defensive structure. So the idea was that Dublin became a kind of fortress of civilization against the wild and dangerous Gaelic savages. Inside the pale, you had a kind of elitist culture of northern European superiority, whereas beyond the pale, you had savagery and magic and old gods and druids, all sorts of scary things that go bump in the night. And this admittedly ridiculous concept lasted right up till the advent of Irish nationalism during yeah. the 19th and into the 20th centuries. It's a deeply regrettable period of English history. But still, Alice Kittler is born within the Pale, as it was known in the 1260s, you said in County Kilkenny. So she was born in Kilkenny itself, which was where the Norman Lord Richard de Clare, the second Earl of Pembroke, also known as Strongbow, had built a Norman fortress. 
Kilkenny Castle when he became Lord of Linster in 1171. That castle was destroyed by Gaelic clans, rebuilt later, destroyed again, then rebuilt in stone in the 13th century, along with some quite grand town walls. Oh, and do they survive to the modern day? They do. And also during the 13th century, Kilkenny Cathedral was built right next to the 9th century Celtic Christian Round Tower. All these buildings still stand today. The city is very important in Irish history. And as I'm hoping this all speaks to, Kilkenny was rich when Alice Kittler was born there. So the fact that she becomes the richest woman in not just the city, but the Quigga of Linster means she really was properly loaded. Okay, so I'm imagining Kilkenny is a kind of booming medieval city. But as for Alice Kittler, where did her wealth come from? Well, Alice's parents had come to Kilkenny from Flanders, and the reason they'd fled was the Hundred Years' War. They were, like many wealthy Dutch people, textile merchants. They used English wool to make amazing cloth to sell for huge profits. But during the 12th century, loads of taxes came down in Flanders to help fund the Hundred Years' War. So the Kittlers fled to Ireland, where a generation or two beforehand, their family members had fought alongside Strongbow. And was it quite unusual for Flanders? people to move to Ireland at this time. Not at all. Lots of Dutch families migrated around this time to places like Scotland and Ireland and elsewhere too. But once in Kilkenny, the Kittlers continued to trade in garments and textiles, living at Kittler House in Kilkenny, which is now a pub. Whoa, so it's still possible to visit Alice Kittler's family home. Oh yeah, it was restored in the 1960s and Kittler's Inn in Kilkenny is one of the oldest pubs in all of Ireland with many medieval features. It's multi-award winning and, of course, as you might expect, contains a pretty funky statue of Alice Kittler herself. Well, that sounds awesome. (laughs) So she's born into this booming medieval city, daughter of rich Flemish textile workers... Then what happens? Well, then things start to get a bit spicier. Around 1280, when she's about 17 or 18 years old, she then marries a man called William Outlaw. Very solid name. Was he an outlaw? (laughs) He was not. He was a local merchant and moneylender. So again, Alice accumulated a bit more wealth through her marriage. And then she bore William's son, who she also called William, and a daughter called Rose. Only 20 years later, William Outlaw Sr. mysteriously died and Alice very quickly remarried a man named Adam Blund, who was another local merchant and moneylender, by which time Alice is still only 37. Okay, and do we know much about how William Outlaw died? Not for sure, although Alice and her new husband, Adam Blund, were accused of poisoning him by Rose, so by Alice's daughter and other local people. And they were actually investigated for the crime. Blimey, but they weren't arrested. I mean, you've got to put things in context. The police, let's not forget, were only invented as a concept, really, in the 1870s. So there's still over half of a millennium before we get to what we might call a detective or police force. We do know that in the end, Alice defended herself by arguing that most of the people accusing her were basically aggrieved because they were were her debtors, so they owed her money. And Rose apparently was bitter because Alice was so close to William Jr. But really, Alice was so wealthy and so well-connected that I can't imagine there was a terribly rigorous inquiry into William Sr.'s death. And when you say well-connected, can we get a sense of the circles she moved in? Well, so Alice and Adam Blund marry in 1302, and Alice's son, William Outlaw Jr., then becomes mayor of Kilkenny in 1305. Okay. 
Okay. He follows in his father's footsteps in this because William Outlaw Sr. had also been mayor of Kilkenny. And William Jr. also inherited his father's business, which he worked on with his mother. The two of them were very much a team. I was going to say, because one of the trickiest things for women in this period of history is that more often than not, the law precluded them from owning certain kinds of property or engaging in particular kinds of business. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what happens throughout Alice's life is that she keeps whatever she legally can keep and what she can't keep by law, she has signed over to William Jr. So in the case of Adam Blund, husband number two, he actually signs over all of his property, his material wealth, including much of his jewellery, and his entire money lending business to William Outlaw Jr. long before he dies. Oh, so Alice and William have a proper business partnership. Oh, they sure do. Meanwhile, Roger Outlaw, Willie Outlaw Sr.'s brother, so Alice's first brother-in-law, was a member of the Knights Hospitaller, so he was a soldier for the king. He was also a judge and eventually Lord Chancellor of Ireland. Blimey. And another of their allies was Walter de Islip, also a Norman lord, originally hailing from Islip in Oxfordshire. He was a cousin of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the eventual Treasurer of Ireland. Whoa. Plus, William Outlaw and Alice Kittler are recorded as having lent money to the king directly. So this is Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks, a.k.a. the Hammer of the Scots. And the money they loaned him was to help fund the English side of the Scottish War of Independence, which featured, of course, William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. They can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Yeah, that war, the one with Mel Gibson in it. And <laughs> after him... Alice and William continued to lend money to Edward II of England, who was a jolly unsuccessful king. The Battle of Bannockburn. Yep, and Piers Galveston. All super-duper interesting history. But to try and focus in on Alice, hopefully you're getting the sense that she's pretty well-connected. Definitely. She seems quite politically powerful as well as being wealthy. Yeah, I mean, the two things tend to go hand in hand. But she was born not as a noble, and neither was her son. So their wealth doesn't quite elevate them into courtly circles. Nonetheless, we can kind of presume that Alice has the entire local nobility on the medieval equivalent of the speed dial. Let's say the Raven dial. Oh, excellent. The Raven dial. I like that. <laughs> we need a rookery and a series of our key contacts on the Raven dial. <laughs> anyway, so we've heard about two husbands so far, but you said there were four? I did. So husband one, William Outlaw, merchant and moneylender. Alice married him around 1280. He died around 1300. Second husband, Adam Blund, she married him in 1302 and he was dead by 1308, so just six years later. By then, he'd handed all of his wealth and his business to William Outlaw, also the city's mayor. That's interesting. So they're doing well and on the rise. And that's two down, two to go. <laughs> yep. Husband number three is Richard de Valle. Now, he's a rich Norman landowner from Tipperary. Alice marries him in 1309 and they're together for seven years. Only when he dies, once again... Alice is taken to court. Oh, who sues her this time? This time, it's Richard de Valley's children, because Alice, in true Black Widow style, has made a tidy inheritance from de Valley's death. In fact, she acquires half of his six rural estates. His children, so Alice's third set of stepchildren, attempted to claw back her widow's dower, as it was known. But once again, Alice was well-connected and rich, and the case was thrown out of court. Bravo! 
got to say, though, I'm imagining that by this point, Alice has probably annoyed quite a few sets of people. (laughs) From being a moneylender in general, she's going to be unpopular. Mm. Then she's knocked through three husbands, made money from the deaths of each, fended herself off from legal complaints, but still has three sets of children or stepchildren who are... Agreed. (laughs) Meanwhile, her firstborn son, the mayor, is increasingly powerful and the pair of them are well connected. She must have had a huge list of enemies. Well, she may well, although she did also have quite a list of supporters. But just to get him out of the way, as potentially Alice herself did, we have (laughs) husband number four, John Lapua, also known as Mad Johnny Lapua, who was the Baron of Donoyle near Waterford. Okay, well, props to Alice for marrying a man known locally as Mad Johnny. (laughs) That does suggest a certain level of confidence on her part. It does. And while being rich and powerful in his own right, Mad Johnny had fought with Edward against the Scots, as had his brother Arnold. Arnold Lepore was a very interesting chap, tried for murder in 1310 and for conspiring with the Gaelic lords and opponents to Norman rule. After fighting for the king to repel the Scottish invasion of Ireland, he was then made steward of Orterard in County Galway and castle warden in County Kildare. Later, he was made the seneschal of Kilkenny as well. So again, Alice marries into a fourth very powerful family. I'm imagining at this point things are going to go pear-shaped for Alice because actually how old is she now? So Mad Johnny dies in 1324 in very dubious circumstances at which point Alice is 61 so hardly very old but by this point she's a landowner she's very well connected very wealthy her son is still mayor of Kilkenny and also very rich her brother-in-law is Arnold, he's a you know, quite dodgy, murdering seneschal of the county. Plus, her previous brother-in-law, Roger Outlaw, is now Lord Chancellor. So she's gone from being the daughter of middle-class Flemish immigrants to being one of the richest women in all of Ireland, certainly the richest in Leinster. And it's at this point some pretty wild accusations start flying about. Go on, what kinds of accusations? I mean, we've got a heck of a lot to come, from sex with demons and deals with the devil to medieval sex toys, an absolute maniac of a bishop, and accusations of poisoning, sorcery, and so much more. We'll start digging into all of it right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So it sounds like time to dish some dirt. Mm. Come on, Martin, get into the juicy stuff. You mentioned 
a mad bishop? I did indeed. So the whole witch trial element of what happens to Alice Kittler very much hinges on one man, Richard de Ledred. Now, people think he came from Leatherhead in Surrey, so his proper name is Richard of Leatherhead. Richard Leatherhead. I can hear it. Yeah, either way, he was born poor and became a Franciscan monk. Then, through the church, he acquired an education, rising through the ranks, and then he eventually attends a very important synod in Avignon in 1316. Now, at that point in history, the papacy was actually based in Avignon and not in Rome. Oh, I feel like that's a whole other schism-rich story. Oh, it really (laughs) is. And I refer people interested in papal history to the excellent podcast Pontifacts. It's brilliant. But anyway, without getting stuck in the weeds, Richard de Ledred attends the synod in Avignon, at which point Pope John Twelfth is getting all fired up about witch trials. Sorry, did you say this was 1316? Yeah, 1316. That seems so early for witch trials. We really tend to think about them as a 16th and 17th century phenomenon, don't we? Well, it was really, really early. And basically, Pope John Twelfth, who was said to have been the target of an assassination attempt by witches himself, he's the guy who basically invents the witch trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, so up until Pope John XII, witch trials were completely different. In English common law and most European law, the accusation of witchcraft had an official title, malefice or maleficium or maleficium, thought of today to basically just mean sorcery. But at that time, it literally meant doing evil. And sentences for maleficium until the 12th century were measured as equal to the damage done to the injured party. Right. So if you magically made someone fall over in their farmyard and were sentenced for having cast that injury as a spell, the court would then make you fall over in their farmyard. Exactly. So the sentences were usually really trivial about things like stealing milk or having affairs with people's spouses. So quite inconsequential. And probably more importantly, the burden of proving the case until that point fell to the accuser. So the accused party or defendant, as we call them today, enjoyed the presumption of innocence until that guilt could be proved. And of course, they could present evidence to undermine the accuser or prosecutor's case. And that is definitely not how things went in later witch trials (laughs) during the 16th and 17th centuries. And, And beyond in some places. But anyway, All of these processes changed because of Pope John XII, who very much followed on from his predecessor, Pope Clement V. Both of those popes were pretty well obsessed with dismantling the Templar order. A lot of the lurid accusations made about the Knights Templar come from the courts of Clement V and John XII, and they use all sorts of wild and saucy evidence against the Templars. Well, I'm guessing that's where we get the accusations of Templars worshipping the demon Asmodeus, for example. It is, and they used confessions evinced by torture, which included accusations of sexual indecency, financial corruption, sorcery, deals with the devil. It was a systematic shift in how witch hunting worked, all linked to the key accusation of heresy. Now, as far as I know, heresy is basically about not believing in God. But am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, the word just means choosing or making a choice. But Pope John Twelfth made heresy, the choice of not believing in a Christian God, a crime for which the accused had to prove their innocence. So he reversed the rules. Plus, it meant any choice a person made that didn't suit a particular church leader, that choice could be seen as heresy. And so all of a sudden, 
anyone could be guilty of going against the church, which was tantamount to working with the devil, making them de facto a witch. So it's the basic idea that Richard de Ledred was in Avignon to witness these trials of Templars. Well, not only was he there to witness them, but the synod he attended was specifically about learning how to hunt heretics and those guilty of maleficium, so doing evil, meaning it was a kind of boot camp. And while Richard de Ledred was there, by all accounts, he really excelled in his studies, and miles away in Ireland, the Bishop of Ossory was getting into some hot water. Ossory? Yeah, Ossory was once one of those 150 Dark Age Irish kingdoms I mentioned earlier, located on the western border of Linster. And once the Bishop of Ossory was excommunicated, this opened up a job vacancy that Pope John Twelfth needed to fill. Oh dear, so does John Twelfth basically just pick the top student from his brand new witch hunting class? He does exactly that. Now, Ossory as a kingdom in Old Gaelic was known as Osrage, meaning the people of the deer or the people of the stag. Within that ancient kingdom, the capital was... Kilkenny. Uh oh. Yeah. Now, since the Norman invasion of Ireland, the church in the intervening years had become incredibly corrupt. For example, the Bishop of Ossory before Richard the Ledred was called William Fitzjohn, and he was notorious for his greed, corruption, and immoral living. He quarrelled constantly with the papacy and the king, refusing to pass on tithes, so church taxes, instead spending those tithes on himself and on infrastructure projects in Ossory. He accumulated great personal wealth and was reputed to have fathered 14 illegitimate daughters, all of whom he married to very rich men. He sounds like quite the character. I want to hear a story about this guy. Fascinating. And he was badly in debt. We don't know for sure, but likely to. Guess who? Alice Kittler and William Outlaw, who were the local lenders to the rich and powerful. This is a recipe for disaster. Yep. And because William Fitzjohn, this previous bishop, kept refusing to pay his tithes to the Pope... John the Twelfth excommunicates him and helicopters in this brand new witch hunting apprentice and all round maniac Richard de Ledred. <laughs> I feel like this is going to go so badly because, as we know, the Franciscans were famously about trying to live in complete poverty. Yeah, we also call them Grey Friars, but um, founded by Francis of Assisi, the Franciscans literally lived in such poverty as an order that they had to beg for food while preaching yep. and didn't want to own any property. They were quite militant. I mean, they were not chill people. Oh, not at all. And so, when Richard de Ledred arrives in. 1317. He starts making waves immediately. For example, he holds his own synod and brings in the Red Book of Ossory. This contains a load of new laws that all vicars, monks, clerks and priests have to abide by in the region, including the banning of all singing, save for 60 brand new Latin hymns written by none other than Richard the Ledred. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, this links slightly back to our ladies dancing Advent episode in that he does not want, and I quote, throats and mouths consecrated to God, polluted by songs which are lewd, secular and associated with revelry. Oh dear, this guy sounds like a fruitcake. He is a nutty, nutty fruitcake. He also, and maybe this is fair, but still, he tells all the men in holy orders who kept concubines that they were to 
forsake them within one month on pain of suspension from office or forfeiture. Okay, banning all singing is less good, but asking the priests to stop keeping sex workers kind of seems fair to me. Yeah, perhaps so. And it might explain where all the tithes were going. But he also says, all those who are aware of the existence of heresy, that key word, in the diocese or of anyone preaching heresy, they also had to report it to the bishop within one month or face the same fate and the best one. He makes provision for the sentence of excommunication to be incurred on anyone who maliciously defames a priest or a clerk or any ecclesiastical goods or possessions. Excommunication? Yeah, so if you insult anyone or anything to do with the church, he'll have you excommunicated. Do bishops even have the power to excommunicate people? They do not. The Pope does, and they're meant to appeal to the Pope, who will do it. But they can say someone is excommunicated and then appeal to the Pope to bring it into force. Yeah, so he was overreaching, basically. He was. And there are 17 articles like those that he brings to bear, and he upsets all the people in the local church, especially as many of them must have been keeping concubines, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he does a very, very silly thing. He goes right into Kilkenny and he starts telling all the local people about the articles from his red book. Wait, so he just <laughs> tries to foist his new rules on everyone in the city? He does indeed. And as you might expect, it does not go well. Instead, things escalate quite quickly. To start off with, people shout at him in the street and insult him. What did you call me? Oh yeah, well, you're, you're excommunicated. Yeah, that's right, madam. Excommunicated. And you, sir, with a silly face, excommunicated. Yeah, suck it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much exactly that. And then when he perseveres with his rules, he gets, and I quote, molested by officials. Oh, uh. Soon people stop paying their tithes altogether. And then a little bit later on, he gets beaten up on the streets of Kilkenny and is, I quote again, despoiled by violence of a hundred shillings. People rob him. Yep. He also gets locked up in prison by the local gentry, along with other common criminals. And any time his servants go into town, they also get beaten up and sometimes thrown in prison too. <laughs> we know about all this because in 1320, he writes to the Pope complaining about how he's being treated by the people of Kilkenny. This is absolutely brilliant. A fire and brimstone bishop, all hopped up with authority from the Pope, comes to rural Ireland and starts picking fights with the local nobility. Yep. And in response... The entire community basically gangs up and bullies him. Yeah, that's about the long and the short of it. And it gets worse and worse until in 1324, he writes to the Pope saying he has uncovered, and here's another quote, a diabolical nest of heretics. Aha, so after years of getting razzed by the great and good of Kilkenny, he discovers they're all witches. <laughs> well, kind of. An open and shut case, you might think. The Bishop of Ossory, Richard de Ledred, has a load of heretics on his hands. So, you know, maybe he's just getting back at his enemies. Yet the evidence he finds is pretty colourful and all centres around Alice Kittler. Well, the evidence might be colourful, but you're going to have to go quite some way to convince me that rather than being a savvy businesswoman, Alice Kittler was actually a witch. Oh, not just a witch, Eleanor, but the head of a coven of heretics, 12 people strong, with its octopus-like tentacles stretching out across Linster. Uh-huh. Come on then. What did he find? Well, it all kicks off when Alice's fourth husband, Mad Johnny Lepore, approaches the bishop to say that he thinks his wife is slowly but surely 
poisoning him to death. And do we know of any evidence related to this poisoning? We don't. It's a long time ago. And no doubt Alice was around Mad Johnny's meals. She may have also been treating him with medicines. But straight away, once the accusation's made, the bishop wants to arrest her. Hmm. Now, the rest of the nobility refuse to let him, not least Mad Johnny's brother, who sides with Alice throughout this whole debacle. And it's worth reiterating that the man's nickname was Mad Johnny. Oh, yes, Your Holiness, my wife's trying to poison me. Also, my trousers are full of custard and my best friend's a giant weasel called Rupert. Do have a lovely day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how mad he was, we don't know. Still, in 1324, he dies, Alice and her son inheriting a whole bunch of his wealth and land. Alas for Alice, Mad Johnny's children then approached the bishop, along with the children from the other three previous husbands. They all accuse Alice of using Maleficium to kill their fathers and make the specific claims that she's used a combination of starvation and poison. It doesn't sound great, does it? But I imagine they're all a bit cheesed off that William and Alice have done so well out of all these deaths. Well, they presumably... Well, that's very much the case. Although complicating matters for Alice, when Mad Johnny's body is inspected, it's found bedraggled, emaciated and missing all the nails from his fingers and toes. Oh, well, that is pretty horrific anyway you look at it. Then again, if he really was mad and died of old age, who knows the specific circumstances? He might have refused to eat, for example. Yeah, maybe he pulled out his own fingernails. Mm. I mean, I think it's highly unlikely, but anything's possible. I guess. So anyway, the bishop wants to arrest Alice and bring William Outlaw, her son, in for questioning. Alice instead calls on her friends in high places, including Roger Outlaw, who's by now the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, and Walter de Islip, the Treasurer of Ireland, and she also goes to live with Arnold Lapoa, the Seneschal of Kilkenny and Mad Johnny's brother. Who clearly doesn't think she's killed his brother, otherwise why let her in? Well, the accusation is that she and William have bribed Arnold Lapoa, but again, there's no evidence of that. Still, old Bishop Richard de Ledbed tries to force Arnold to give Alice up, and Arnold responds by, once again, I love this, arresting the bishop and locking him in prison. <laughs> oh, this is so wonderful. You can just imagine this angry little man screaming and shouting. He's questing for truth, Eleanor, on God's behalf. Yeah, whatever. You can just imagine him properly losing it and the local nobility going, you know what, Richard, maybe some time in prison will call your jets. It does not do that, of course. Of course. <laughs> he emerges from his 17-day stay in Kilkenny Castle even angrier. He announces that Alice has been excommunicated and, after an investigation, files formal charges against her of heresy and maleficium. And when you say investigation, what does he actually find? Well, his investigation very much follows the kind of processes he'd seen in Avignon, by which I mean he captures Alice's servant Petronilla de Meath and tortures her. And she confesses all of these sordid, evil things she's seen Alice getting up to over the years. First, what a hateful man. Mm. And second, what did Petronilla say Alice had actually done? Well, firstly, she said that Alice had a coven of fellow sorcerers, including her servants... They included people like Robert of Bristol, Petronilla de Meath, Meath's daughters, Basilia and Sarah, John and Ellen Sissek Galrusson, Anota Lang, Eva de Brownstone, William Payne de Bolly, and Alice Favour. Right. 
Plus, Petronilla said Alice made dark magic-based powders and potions from some pretty spicy ingredients, including the body parts of unbaptized children, which she rubbed onto her besom to help her fly. In fact, I have a quote from Petronilla's confession here. Would you like to hear it? Of course. Okay. On one of these occasions, by the crossroads outside the city, she had made an offering of three cocks to a certain demon from the depths of the underworld. She had poured out the cock's blood, cut the animals into pieces, and mixed the intestines with spiders and other black worms like scorpions, with a herb called milfoy, as well as other herbs and horrible worms. She had boiled this mixture in a pot with the brains and clothes of a boy who died without baptism and with the head of a robber who'd been decapitated. Well, that's pretty grisly. It is. And it was alleged that these potions were used to corrupt, bewitch and kill her husbands to take their money for herself and William and to summon Alice's two demon lovers. No, one demon lover, but two, because one is not enough. <laughs> yeah, so these demons became her servants and lovers after she'd sold her soul to the devil. Well, naturally. <laughs> yeah. Why else do it? And the first one was called Robin Artisan. He served her as a familiar spirit, most often appearing in the form of a black cat. But also at times, Robin appeared as a shadowy figure described as dark as an Ethiopian. And it was said that in this shadow form, Artisan could also split himself into three identical versions of himself, each carrying an iron rod, and that sometimes they would have sex with Alice and Petronilla would watch. So, you know, that must have been pretty exciting. Wow. Four husbands and a demon lover who can split himself into three identical versions for bedroom antics. I mean, Alice Kittler, fair play to you, particularly considering that by this time she's in her 60s. Indeed. Then the second demon was called Artis Phileas, with Artis, along with Robin, being said to have given Alice advice, including on increasing her power as a sorcerer and witch, which I would have thought would be pretty handy. Yeah, a bit like being able to anonymously Google, how does one kill the husband for money and get away with it? Yeah. Now, when all this happened, Alice took Petronilla's daughter Basilia with her and fled to Dublin. Once there, Alice stayed with Richard Outlaw, who sheltered her. But Richard de Ledred used her absence to search her house, where he found... A Amongst her personal effects, shock, horror, sacrilege, a wooden dildo with accompanying pot of lubricant. Good heavens, what sinful behaviour. I may have to lie down. <laughs> well, to a Franciscan bishop in the 14th century, no doubt it was. But significantly, this dildo was the only piece of physical evidence <laughs> Richard de Leathred was able to find. Can you imagine, <laughs> though... A bishop rocking up to a court of law, laying out his case, and the judge says, oh, your evidence, please, to which he pops down a dildo and some lubricant. Case closed. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Of course, by this time, it seemed like the scandal was pretty much out of control, and the bishop arrested all the other members of Alice's so-called coven. At this point, Alice and Basilia flee, we think, to England, never to be heard of again. There's literally no trace or sense of what happened to Alice or Basilia afterwards. Oh, I bet her friends and allies got money to her somehow. I bet she lived the life of Riley wherever she ended up. And no doubt she could afford brand new means of personal recreation. Well, of course. But still, the bishop was then made furious when, after being interviewed, the rest of the coven was released without charge as there was insufficient evidence to hold them. Classic. The prime victim of all this, though, sadly, in the end, was Petronilla Demeath. That's because she, having confessed, was found guilty of 
heresy. So the bishop then publicly flogged her in Kilkenny on the 3rd of November, 1324, then burned her at the stake. Oh no, Petronilla! Yep, so he murdered Petronilla for sure in public, and then he demanded a public hearing to lay out his case against William Outlaw, Alice's son. What a monster. Yeah. Now, William's trial was delayed by the nobility, but it eventually happened in 1325, at which time William was made to kneel before the bishop and then agree to attend mass twice a week for the next three years. Wait, so Petronilla was burned at the stake, despite confessing, Mm -hmm. while William, who wasn't actually implicated in the coven, but was the prime beneficiary of Alice's business dealings, was sentenced to go to church. Pretty much. Only William being William didn't go. Oh. And instead, the nobles of Kilkenny banded together with him and paid the bishop a thousand pounds to basically just forget the whole thing. And did he forget the whole thing? Well, not really. Mm. He continued to throw accusations about wildly for the next four years until ultimately he'd upset so many people that Edward III exiled him from Ireland in 1329. He didn't lose his official position, though, and continued to try to exert pressure from afar. For example, in 1355, he excommunicated William de Bromley, the then Lord Treasurer of Ireland, to prevent him from collecting tithes in ossery on the king's behalf, and this resulted in a serious financial loss to the crown. What an idiot. Yeah, and an old idiot, because he lived to be over a hundred years old old, dying just short of his 101st birthday. Wow, that's not nothing in those times. No, indeed. But his legacy was massive because the way he condemned Hitler and her so-called followers set the precedent for all subsequent witchcraft and heresy cases in the British Isles. Literally, Richard the Leatherhead's methods and approach in this case were the foundation stone upon which all future English, Scottish and Irish witch trials were executed. That is so absurd. It was a terrible case with basically no merits. More or less. And let's not forget, sentences of burning by the stake for witches or those guilty of witchcraft continued in England until 1612, Scotland until until 1727, and in Ireland, the practice continued right up until 1895. 1895, that's horrendous. It sure is. And it all started with Petronilla de Meath and Alice Kittler being accused by Richard the Leatherhead, the Bishop of Ossory. So then, Eleanor, what do you think? Is there any part of you that believes Alice Kittler was a witch? No, of course not. (laughs) I mean, even if she did murder her husbands, which I doubt, (laughs) a sex toy and a forced confession does not a witch make. Yeah, I mean, the condition of Mad Johnny's body is the creepiest part of the case in my mind, but I could find no evidence about who actually inspected it or how long he'd been dead when they did or any information about the other trials and alleged murders. So it's all a bit obscure. It's also crazy to me to think that even now, Alice Kittler's reputation seems to be grounded on this idea that she was the first woman condemned for witchcraft in Ireland. Not that she was a woman who made pots of money and then annoyed a bishop, so ended up accused of witchcraft, Mm. and was one of many people who annoyed him, but was probably maybe a soft target because she wasn't born with a title. Yeah, and she was also a she, but you know, we at Three Ravens are at least doing our best to try and right that wrong. And I'm sure that part of why she's still talked about in the terms she is, is that she fled and disappeared so she was never tried. Because only Petronilla paid the price for her confession, which implied 
guilt for Alice. But I have to think that if Alice had stayed and her local nobility and all her powerful friends had helped her present her case, the bishop would, once again, have ended up with egg on his face. I would have hoped so, but I guess why bother? She escaped, she didn't have to deal with it. Mm. I mean, certainly William didn't have to pay much of a price either, except taking a knee and paying up some of his vast fortune. Which I expect he also managed to somehow get some off to his mum, you know? Do you think it's even possible that she killed her husband? Well, of course it's possible, but thankfully our court system continues to work on the principle of innocent until proven guilty, not the other way round. Yeah, thank goodness. Even if we do regularly still have dreadful miscarriages of justice. Nonetheless, I do still kind of like the idea that Alice Kittler was and maybe even still is a witch and that maybe even now she's using her powers to stay alive and make sweet, sweet love to her triple-bodied demon whenever she fancies. Well, that's a nice thought. (laughs) And thank you, Martin. That was absolutely fascinating. Oh, my pleasure. And as ever, if you'd like extra content and aren't already a Patreon supporter, please consider signing up to our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Our Patreon exclusive film club episode about Cemetery Man also went up today, so we hope everyone's enjoying that. And we'll, of course, be back on Monday. And where will we be visiting? Well, I'm going to be talking about the history and folklore of Derbyshire a county of ancient standing stones, peeing giants, more witches, ghosts, hobs, and I'm going to be telling the tale of the Boggarts of Arbaloo. Excellent. Our first proper Boggart story. Bring it on. And in the meantime, while our supposed witch has fled across the ocean that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Fox. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean men With a down, derry, 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 down